Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Distressed Situations. I am very pleased and honored to be joined today by Stephen Duplantis. He's an executive managing director at Newmark, has ages and ages of experience in real estate valuation. We are grateful for having him. And introduce yourself if you if you can. My name is Steve Duplantis, based out of Houston, executive managing director for Newmark. 40 years uh, in the business, which, as Keith says, makes me ageless <laughs> <laughs> and been a appraiser my entire career with three jobs. And so by way of background, I've worked with Steve a handful of times during my career. It's always been an awesome experience, and I'm really looking forward to hearing his thoughts on, on valuation, valuation techniques, and the real estate market in general today. Uh, so, Steve, before we get started, on the meat of today's topic. What do you do? What do you like to do for fun? I'm blessed with a 16 year old son that plays a lot of baseball. So I'm spending my summer 11 straight weekends watching baseball tournaments on a select team and then try to get my fishing in when I can. And then my endless tiring events of playing with my bird dogs, which I train are my main hobbies and then spending time with my wife. So that's a full schedule. I like it. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about valuation. Give me the basics. When a client comes to you and says they want a valuation, what is it that they're asking you to do? Typically, you need to understand the scope of the assignment before you can really answer that question and understand what type of values that you're going to present. Understanding the scope of the assignment could be from just typical mortgage work, which probably represents 90% of the valuation work out there. It's a regulatory requirement that for a financial institution or a lending institution must get an appraisal before lending money. So it's sort of a built-in job for appraisers from a regulatory environment. So you need to understand the scope and what they're looking for to do the correct appraisal. The other types could be something as you know, detailed as legal work, workout work, and it gets a little bit more complicated. But once you understand the scope, then you can move forward with the appropriate methods to value properties. All right. So we're talking about methods to value properties here. What are the basic methods? And let's let's kind of dumb it down so somebody like me can understand it. It's pretty easy. I tell everybody you do a, everybody's an appraiser. Everybody does a mini appraisal every day. When you walk into the store and you look at a green bean aisle, you decide whether you're willing to pay extra for Del Monte or the name brand store at the at the store. So you sort of make a decision and weigh it in. You think something's better or worse. And that you're willing to pay a little bit more premium or a little bit less premium based on the quality of that product. In the appraisal world, it's pretty simple. We have three approaches to value. The first one's probably the most simple and easily understood. It's just what would it cost to acquire the land and build the building and total cost. And then you would add a profit to it. And that's called the cost approach. The second approach typically considered is called the sales comparison. Similar to the green bean scenario, you look at other comparable properties that have sold Look at a common unit of comparison. Best example for a common unit of comparison would be like if you're buying an apartment complex, somebody typically talks in the terms of 
how much per unit did it sell for? Not what the entire project sold for, but price per unit. By doing that, you have a common unit of comparison that you can make to that of the subject property. The third unit uh, or third method would be the income approach. And that's just simply looking at the income a property is able to generate. And then you capitalize that into a value or an appropriate return of what people look at. And the income would take into consideration could be fee simple, which represents the property is not encumbered, or lease fee, which would represent the property is encumbered by long-term leases, which you see every day when you look at retail centers, office buildings, industrial properties, they're typically encumbered by long-term leases, and that would be called lease fee by the income approach. But again, you get down to the bottom line, what will a property make? That's before debt service and interest, or what you would pay the bank, so it's true income, uh, EBITDA, and then you capitalize that into a value. And so if I'm the lender, I'm making sure the appraisal is high enough that it covers up my loan and that if I have to take the property back, I can get my loan repaid, right? In theory, yes. And the lenders have, due to the banking regulations that have occurred over the last 10 years, have strict regulations. So typically the lender that you're working with to get your loan is not the same group in the bank that orders the appraisal. They keep them separate. So they can truly get a true independent opinion of the value of the property without undue pressure on the appraiser. But yes, in theory, he would hope the appraisal comes in at a level that justifies the loan requirements. He'd also hope that in case he did receive the property back, that his collateral's in good shape and he could get his money back out of it. So I've seen this designation on your on your uh, resume. It says MAI. I assume that is not made as instructed. It is not made as instructed. It's also not MIA, missing in action, which a lot of uh, people refer to when I'm doing legal work. MAI means member of the Appraisal Institute. It's a professional designation. It says that you've taken the extra time to achieve and respect the uh, organization that you belong to or the profession as an appraiser. And it's a series of 10 to 12 classes, writing a demonstration report, having your work reviewed by a peer committee, and then passing a comprehensive exam. And then once you achieve your MAI designation, you're required to take X amount of hours every five years, typically 100 hours of continuing education to make sure that you stay up with your certification and it gives more credibility to the member of Appraisal Institute or the MAI. So I've been told that when it comes to real estate, the most important thing is location, location, location. How does that factor into the to the work you do? It's, it's pretty simple. You drive through the country, you can see that properties are not in high demand. Whereas you drive into an area, the best example you can give to Houston, if you tell somebody you're from Houston, they go, you know the Galleria? Everybody knows the Galleria in Houston, Texas. It's a common ground. It's probably the most visited uh, site in Houston, Texas. That's ground zero for location in Houston, Texas. That's as good as it gets. And so sometimes people actually pay a premium in real estate cost to be in that ground zero, maybe for advertisement or whatever, or for just traffic. The location is a critical factor. And then it depends on the type of business you're in. If you're in the retail, it's more critical than not. If you're in a, uh, if you have a business that's more of a destination business, such a, use an extreme example as the hospital, they just need to be able to get to a hospital. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I'm going to put a, a little context in the, in front of this next question. 
A lot of times in the distress situation, valuation has significant legal impacts. For example, in a bankruptcy case, the difference between being oversecured and undersecured can be significant in terms of the recovery that the creditor gets, and it can impact the rights that a creditor has. As an oversecured creditor, for example, in a bankruptcy case, the creditor can't vote as an unsecured creditor. As an undersecured creditor, they may in fact have a blocking position in some real estate bankruptcy cases. And so in those instances, it's oftentimes a battle of the experts. And let's say you are Steve Duplantis and you're looking at two dueling appraisals. One is high, one is low, and you don't wanna take the Solomon approach and just split the middle. Where does the art meet the science in terms of evaluating appraisals in your mind? Well, the art is definitely an art, not 100% science. It's not just 100% mathematical formula. So it's knowing how to explain those property types and knowing how to explain your position and value in the real estate. And then having the the facts and the data to back you up uh, usually wins the day. If you're not trying to make a number and trying to push a number and just relay the facts as they are for a property, Typically, properties pretty well explain themselves through their historical uh, achievements on income, if there's been a demand to buy or sell it, and then you look at the location. So it's not too tricky when you're not pushing and you're just talking talking about the truth and what's really occurring with that property. So I think one of the most interesting things in these types of, of talks is to hear a little bit about maybe your favorite appraisal or your favorite moment in court? Well, I've had a, I've had a few favorite appraisals. Um, as again, I described some of my hobbies when you asked me to start on from hunting and fishing and spending time outdoors. I actually got to appraise the uh, a third of the King Ranch in South Texas, which is pretty famous. I got to meet Miss Alice East. She was a granddaughter of Captain King. She was 104 years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She had a 5,000 square foot house with no central air or heat because she didn't believe in spending the money. She had a 400,000 acre ranch. She was actually, I was actually doing it because she had outlived her daughter, unfortunately, and paying estate taxes coming back on the ranch. So when you get to step back in history and time and see that, that's an amazing thing. And it was amazing to meet a, a lady that was 104 years old that's part of Texas history and sit at her dinner table and eat. And we actually had uh, eaten a calf that had broken his leg the day before. So it's just real life at that point. Other favorite appraisals, you know, I've gotten to step into remote areas in the Baja where the power ran out at 10 o'clock and they had schools that ranged uh, everybody in the same schoolhouse from first grade to the 12th grade and looking at estates and remote properties from there. And then typically I've been fortunate to have my career where I've appraised all types of properties. And so my job changes a little bit each day from looking at industrial, multifamily, office, or retail, and unique properties like that. So I've been blessed with my career and to see something a little bit different each time. What do you see happening in the future of the appraisal business? Is it always gonna be a relationship-based and and a report-based process, or do you see automation coming into your industry? Automation is definitely here. You have every major company striving for more automation. Good or bad, the appraisals that I wrote 30 years ago look very similar to the appraisals I write today. 
however, the appraisal 30 years ago took three to four weeks to produce. And with automation, we're producing better appraisals with better quality in a day and a half now. Until certain regulations and requirements change, appraisals will continue to look the same and have the same feel. When regulations change, that'll make a nice difference at that point. And so then they'll be more streamlined. Uh, there is some AVMs, automatic valuation models, being used in the residential business today. And then they're pretty proficient and do a pretty good job. When will it come to commercial properties? I'd say down the road. And when are they used for distress situations or courtroom situations? A long way down the road. When you talk about AVMs, are you talking about the Zestimate that I look at when I look up my house on the internet? Yeah, Zillow or something like that. They do an estimate and they're probably pretty close. And I could see appraisal districts going to a lot of AVMs in the future because they're doing mass appraisals where they're doing, you know, two million properties in the Houston area or something. Well, Steve, we really appreciate your time today. This has been fascinating. We're grateful. Uh, and to those listening, we hope you've enjoyed listening to Steve as much as we have. And we look forward to having you at the next episode of Distress Situations. Thank you very much for including me. Again, I'm blessed with my profession, so I enjoy talking about it. And it's not really a job every day. It's something I enjoy. So thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.